Welcome to In The Hunt Podcast. We will bring clarity to the complex game of golf. Start your path to better play today. This is Brian Bailey from Charlottesville, Virginia, and I'm joined with Mark Sweeney from Windermere, Florida, and we welcome you to The Hunt. Welcome to this episode of In The Hunt. Um, this is Brian Bailey here from Charlottesville, Virginia, Mark Sweeney here in Windermere, Florida. Uh, we're going to switch format topics again here a little bit, and we're actually going to do a caddy view. Um, so we have two great guests coming on here in a second, but before I introduce them, Mark, Groundhog Day, day 417. How's it going? Day X, yeah, whatever it is. No, I'm, I'm actually uh, settled into a routine pretty well here and uh, excited about digging in deeper into a lot of these topics that we're going into um, and having the time to actually get into it and talk to people because we're usually too busy to get into it, frankly. So it's, it's actually a, a pretty nice little period of time where we can dig deep. All right. So, uh, well, John's gone ahead and jumped in the screen here. Uh, let's go introduce <laughs> some of our guests. We have John Wood, uh, caddy on tour. John, you want to jump in here and just give us a little insight about yourself? Hey, Brian, thanks a lot. Um, great joining you guys. I am also in this Groundhog Day mode right now. Um, ever since being kicked out of Yellowstone when they closed the park. So, uh, but I've been caddying on tour for 24 years now with uh, Kevin Sutherland and Cal Kavekia and Hunter Mahan and, and now Matt Kuchar. So, uh, and, I, and I took the course from the aim point course from Peter uh, a few years back and uh, it's, it's been wonderful for me. So uh, that's kind of my background. Perfect. And, and lack of judgment from Mark Sweeney and myself, we're actually going to introduce a new uh, participant today. His name is Peter Brown uh, based out of California. Hey Pete, how are you doing? I'm good. Enjoying my groundhog's day. Uh, I tended to my garden earlier this morning. Yes, I do have. <laughs> Doncy <a> Gardener. <laughs> yes. So I planted my azaleas in my new retaining wall. That was one of the projects. Uh, and then put in a bunch of uh, plants, uh, corn. What kind tomato. of plants? Yeah, not those kind. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> but anymore. Uh, yeah, no. All right. That's my mom and dad. <laughs> All right. Very good. So let's actually dive in here and actually talk golf. Um, so, what kind of uh, here's some thoughts we had. Uh, kind of understanding uh, green books is a big deal. Um, the RA, the USGA went nuts, and then we're going to do stuff and didn't do stuff and did kind of some stuff. So kind of, you know, this is still a big topic. So we'll start with you, John. How do you see green books? How do you actually use them with your players? Uh, how do you interpret them? And how do you feel they're a benefit to your player? Sure. Um, I use them. I definitely use them. I think you have to use it as a tool. You can't use it as, you know, this is the rule. This is the law. It's always right. Because it's not. I mean, they're, they're, they're idiosyncrasies that the books can't pick up. Um, but I use it a lot for approach shots, believe it or not. Um, I like uh, being able to show my player, you know, in full color arrows rather than just telling him, you know, here's what I think. Um, I, can, I can give him a specific visual of how the ball is going to react once it's on the green. Um, and also, you know, in terms of, of where we can get balls up and down from. I do use them for green reading, but it's definitely more of a tool. And I always use them um, in concert with, with my feet and my, my my aim point reads always take precedence over the book reads. But uh, when you, you know how to use them, and it is a skill learning how to use them correctly, um, I think they're a great tool. Um, if you don't know how to use them, they're, they're a hindrance. They're going to hurt you. Very good. And, and 
how how does that book about like how does that kind of adapt over the week when you come in you have a book let's say it's an event or a course and you're not used to playing maybe a WGCA event or something how how do you actually take that book from what you get in the beginning of the week and how do you kind of shape that for what you like to see and maybe even what your player likes to see sure um if it's a new course, a major or WGC that we haven't been to before, um, I'll spend a lot of time on, on figuring out pin placements. Um, and when, you know, once you've been out there a long time, if it's a course we've been to a lot, they tend to use the same pins over and over and over. Uh, if it's a new course, you have to figure it out. Um, you know, I think they're going to put one here, 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 and here. And from there, you, I do a lot of work um, in terms of where can we get a ball up and down from. Um, a lot of the approaches are very straightforward, uh, or at least you can f- figure out what you want to do with them immediately. Um, a lot of times I want to know where we can get a ball up and down from if we do get in trouble. You know, I want to be able to tell Matt, hey, we're fine here, but you have to get this ball right of the green. Right of the green, you've got a chance. Left of the green, you've got no chance whatsoever. Um, so I like, I, like, I like using them for that. Um, in terms of, of reading greens, they're kind of the same week to week. Once you have it calibrated in terms of speed, um, you know, it's, it's just – it's almost just math at that point. But, yeah, I, I use them a lot for approaches um, and, and definitely for, for getting balls up and down. And, Peter, for uh, you as a coach, uh, your name point instructor, but you've actually helped a bunch of different caddies um, learn to read greens better using aim point and understanding the books. Can you give us some insight on that? Um. So a lot of the guys all go in and ask uh, whether they and their players actually use the books. Um, if their player doesn't feel comfortable using the book, I tell them don't, don't pull that out because uh, that's just going to make them nervous. Uh, so if they don't use the book, we rely totally on feel. And I say, you've got to practice this, um, you know, each time you get to the golf course with your player so then they know what you're doing and then they can start to trust you on that. Um, if they are using the books, like what he said, it's super important to make sure that they know how to use the book correctly. Uh, I don't know how many times I've actually worked with caddy that they show me how they think the book works and it's really kind of not helpful for them at all. Uh, they get confused. They look at it and go, I don't even know what all these arrows mean. Um, and I say, you know, let's go through one of these things a step at a time. Uh, and I'll tell them, you know, a lot of times the books will be close, but to rely on that 100%, you cannot do that. Um, you're just going to get confused. And a lot of times the green books aren't as accurate as the feel that you're going to have. I love that. And, and kind of what John said earlier too, talking about, I think that they're more powerful with approach shots and even short game than the physical getting on the green help is actually telling me how the ball is going to break. But I think it actually leading into the green is much more important. Do you have any insight or thoughts on that? Um, absolutely. Uh, I like using those green books from those approaches to say, okay, there's going to be a mound here or a crown or a, a saddle that you're going to fly into. And based on, you know, how high the shot is coming in from, they can actually stop it or it, it's not going to stop. Now, one of the things that Woody did mention about the approaches that I saw um, years ago with him 
was that he actually highlighted them in different colors in one of the books. Uh, that was, I'm pretty sure that was at Chambers Bay. Am I correct, Woody? Yeah, absolutely. And so that book, uh, Ping actually shared that on their Instagram page, and it was highlighted in, I think it was orange and blue, wasn't it? I believe so. Orange was good for the yeah. Giants, and blue was bad for the Dodgers. So it's exactly. easy for me to remember. Yes. So I showed that to a couple other guys and said, hey, this is really helpful because then you can look at it super fast. It's not like you're trying to look for where the arrow is going. What is the slope doing? Um, and so I definitely use that with some other players and caddies. You guys hear me? Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't agree more with y'all. Um, little known fact is I created one of the first green books in 2004 at the Zurich Classic. We were out there doing a demo for Aimpoint and we'd scan the greens and I created the book just to experiment with it. And we put one in every caddy's locker. And uh, I went and talked to a bunch of players after every, every player in caddy's locker. And I went and talked to some players afterwards and to a man, they said, I can't possibly use this. It's too complicated. It's going to destroy my flow. Um, I don't understand it. And they all just rejected it it's flat out. So I abandoned the idea. And 15 years later, it's, it's everywhere and people freak out if they don't have it. And I think it's been fascinating to watch the evolution of that. Um, but, but they're definitely a skill. I mean, you can't just take it and know what you're doing with it. And I've had loads of players use it incorrectly and come up with wrong answers. Uh, I've seen green books that, are, that are, have flipped the green backwards. Uh, I think it was at the U.S. Open one year at Congressional, and I think the ninth hole was actually tilted the wrong direction. And I was standing on the green, and the green book was saying one way, and I'm going, it does not go that way. Uh, and I've seen a few other situations like that. Um, Woody, what, what kind of uh, – what have you noticed with the accuracy of them? I, I've, I've noticed that the flatter the area, the less accurate they tend to be. But have they gotten better over the years, or does it depend on who the vendor is, or kind of what's your experience with that? Yeah, I, I basically use Mark Long's books exclusively, and I think they're really good. Um, but like you said, you've got to be meticulous in your preparation with them. You have to have the ball exactly where the ball is. You have to have the hole exactly where the hole is. If you're off, you know, 18 inches, you're going to be wrong, period. There's no other way around it because it's that final line. You, you give these guys a line and a speed, and they're – they're going to hit it on it most of the time. Um, and if you are incorrect in placing a hole or the ball, you are going to be wrong. Um, but like I said, I, I use them as a tool. I always, if the book says slightly right to left on a six footer and I get up there and my feet are telling me, I don't feel that I feel slightly left to right. It's not straight. Then I'll always give my foot precedence over that just because I know that's factual. I know where I am with my feet, I'm on the line. Um, and I might be a little bit off in the book. The book might be slightly off, but um, they've gotten really pretty darn good over the years in terms of, of being correct. And it's not that often that I make a big change from what the book might say to what my feet say. Yeah, I agree. I, I've used uh, Mark Long's scans before. We use them for the Ryder Cup and I found them very, very accurate. Um, yeah. But I did have a player say to me once, uh, you know, he was reading a putt and he missed. And he said, well, I felt it left to right, but the book said right to left. And so he said, I assume the book must be right. And I think that was a fundamental flaw in thinking 
thinking that, you know, the scan and your positioning is more accurate than your feel. And I love the fact that you're letting your feel override the book. If you're, if you get up there on those subtle ones and you're like, no, this is hundred percent, this is either straight or inside left, not, you know, right edge. So uh, I think it obviously sounds like you use them very effectively. I try to, you know, Matt, Matt doesn't use it. Um, he called, we work a lot together on reading greens. Matt's an, an excellent green reader. Um, I would say I probably read 70% of the greens with him, obviously depending week to week. But I think he likes the fact that we're reading it two differently completely ways. He, he's using his eyes like he always has. And he definitely uses his feet a little bit in terms of feel. But when I get in there and I do my feels with my feet, maybe use the green book a little bit, and we come up with the same answer using completely different methods, all of a sudden it's completely frees up his head going, all right, we're right. I'm just going to hit this thing. I know we're right. We've got it. You know, two different ways we come up with the same answer. If we don't see it the same way, I'll kind of explain what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, um, any influences that I think might, you know, might be uh, on the putt. And then he makes his decision from there, whether he wants to use his read or my read. But um, a lot of times, you know, most of the time we're really close. Um, and I think it frees him up a lot in terms of, all right, I'm going in there with two different reads exactly the same location. So um, that's kind of how we use it. Um, Would you say that the majority of the caddies that uh, are on tour that use it are probably most effective on the straightish putts or the zero one putts with aim point? uh, And maybe their player doesn't use it as much on breaking putts. Absolutely. That's where I found the biggest difference in using aim point and, and using my eyes. Um, it, it, it's, I feel like since I took the lessons from you and, and learned aim point, I've learned more about green reading than I have in the previous 30 years of my golfing career, sure. whatever that is. Um, yeah, but it, definitely the straight ones is when, when you want to use it most. And, and, and the great thing with Matt, Matt's not afraid to hit a putt hard, a six footer hard. Um, so on those straight ones, a lot of times we just say, you know, you can take all the break out of this by giving it, you know, 24 inches of past the hole and yeah. he'll do, he'll do that a lot. But yeah, on the, on the straight ones, that's when it's, when it's most useful. And also for trying to figure out uphill, downhill sometimes, yes. you know, sometimes you're on the side of a mountain and it looks like it's Kapalua is a great example. A lot of greens are built opposite of the mountain and you're looking, you see all the land going one way and you sleep, you feel the green going another. Um, and it's, it's nice to look in a book and go, okay, my feet are right. All the arrows are doing that. So I use it a lot for uphill, downhill too. Those slight, you know, very subtle ones. Yeah. Kind of leaning into the slope or leaning away from the slope. Exactly. Um, a couple of caddies that I worked with, literally we spent an hour and a half, two hours on just zeros and ones and said, okay, if, if you feel it, lean backwards and it'll tell you which way it's going to trickle or lean forward into it and see what, which way is it going to go. Um, and he said, now I can tell whether it's uphill or downhill. Said, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of important. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it's funny how they'll all of a sudden go, oh, wait a minute. Did you know this? No, no, of course not. (laughs) So it's pretty cool when they come up with their own answer. And then kind of building off of that, um, John, for if there's uh, some people listening right now that are inspiring to be caddies, 
that 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 want the lifestyle to travel uh, to work. Uh, can you give us a couple traits or some some advice on for these people that are trying to enter this as as a career path? Sure. Um, I think the most important thing, and I think you know every caddy has a different personality, a different way of doing certain things. The one trait that every good caddy has is they're overly prepared. Uh, a guy like Joe LaCava or Paul Tesori, um, Brett Waldman, uh, Michael Greller, Bones, when, when Bones was caddying. I like to say that all these guys, they have the answer to five questions for every shot that never get asked. So as, you, as you're walking into shots or putts, as soon as Matt hits a shot into a green or hits a drive into the fairway, you know, I'm immediately switched on to what's next. What's he going to want to know? What is he going is he going to want to know wind? Is he going to want to know uphill, downhill? Is he going to want to know um, what the green is like in terms of firm or soft? Is he going to want to know where we can get a ball up and down from? So overly preparing and knowing the answers to a lot of questions. Because when you do get asked, you don't want to sit there fumbling with your yardage book. And uh, mm, uh, you don't want to think. You want to be confident immediately, you know, immediate with your answer. Um, because he's going to believe you then, you know. And if you're right often enough and he knows you've done your homework, he knows you're prepared, um, that's, that's the one trait I think that is uh, invaluable. You can't be a good caddy without being overly prepared. Um, you have to be pretty adaptable. I think you need to figure out what your player needs every day given day and that can change you know six times during a round um is he feeling good does he need a pat on the back is he is he down in the dumps does he need a, a pep talk or a kick in the butt um so you got to be able to read your player and adapt to what he might need at the time and, and also if you're working for different players here and there you know one player might want things set up one way another player might want things set up a completely different way so um you got to be really adaptable um I think one thing that I like, I think is important that I'm not sure a lot of other guys do. Maybe they do. I think it's important to have a life and a world outside of golf um, because nobody can talk about golf and think about golf for five hours a day. It just, you're, you're, you're going to burn yourself out. It takes too much energy. So to have a life and opinions and things to talk about outside of the world of golf in between the shots or get into a par five when there's two groups sitting there because it's reachable. Um, I think that's, that's pretty important as well. So a lot of times it's something not to do with golf that you need to get their mind off and let them relax a little bit. Nice. And then, uh, it, you know, you, you've been in the golf world now for 30 years. <laughs> when you look at where you started and to where you're now, would you really predicted this is going to happen? And No chance. And what, what <laughs> would you tell yourself now – 20 some years ago of going, well, this will speed up your process a whole heck of a lot faster. Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I played high school golf. I played college golf and I thought I knew what tournament golf was all about. Uh, when I started for working for Kevin Sutherland at, at AT&T uh, was where we started together. Um, you know, five holes into the first round, I thought, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Um, the amount of preparation and the amount of knowledge that goes into a lot of these decisions and conversations, um, they may sound overly complicated, uh, but when you do it for as much as we have, they're not. Um, these are very basic things where, you know, I, I kid Bryson DeChambeau because I, 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 I give him a bad time. I say, you know, everybody else is doing exactly what you're doing. 
but we're doing it in 25 seconds and without big words. <laughs> so, uh, Never. you know, there's just a lot more that goes into it than I, than I ever would have imagined, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of tournament golf at this level. And, and for you, Pete, um, working with a bunch of caddies, that's a different – working with a player is one thing. Uh, working with a caddy can be a completely different interaction going on as in training and understanding. So give us some insight on caddies you've worked with and how you're able to influence them and help them on their journey. Um, so a, a couple of the guys that are real young, um, Daryl Atten is one who worked for Mackenzie Hughes the last couple of years. Um, you know, I remember when I trained him at Aim Point when he was playing college golf at, Mon at uh, gosh, CSU Monterey Bay. And he was like, well, do you think I, I should do caddy? And I said, well, it, that's up to you. If you're ready for the travel and the stress of being on when those guys are there, you've got to be ready for that. Um, some of the more experienced caddies, obviously, it's just fine-tuning what they've already done. So a lot of times I'll ask them, well, how do you like to approach certain things with uh, green reading or just uh, general approach shots? And uh, I'll say, what does your player like to do? Because that's really what it all stems back to is how are you going to be able to help your player? And if you're giving them information that they're looking at you like, yeah, I don't think so. As a coach, you've got to be able to, to kind of read both interactions, the interaction that you're providing to the caddy, as well as the interaction that the caddy is then going to provide to the player. If you're not clear, uh, it, you definitely do not want to give them advice that's going to get them in trouble with their player. So you've got to keep it, I don't want to say general, but only give them as much as you think that they need. If you give them too much all at once, that's where, like what he was talking about, fumbling through the book. If they're fumbling through the book, their player's going to look at them like, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out. So, you know, as much of a, as the caddies are psychologists, you kind of have to be that psychologist as well, working with the caddy and then the player on top of that. So. Yeah, John, I, I, um, I'm glad you brought up the fact that how hard caddies work with preparation. Cause one thing I didn't appreciate till I started working with some caddies is how many hours they put in. That I think people are completely unaware of. Um, I mean, it is a long, long, long day being a caddy on tour. And, and I think you're right. You definitely need something else out there. Um, one of the first caddies I worked with, he, I said, you know, what kind of, you know, when do you get called in to read a putt? And I'm going back to kind of building confidence with your player and, and being right. He said, well, I usually get called in on the, on the iffy putts where you don't know whether it's left edge or right edge or straight, not on the big breaking putts. He said, but if I get it wrong, he goes, you won't call me in for three weeks. He goes, so I've got to get it right 100%, otherwise I'm cooked for a while. So that was my first experience kind of understanding the, the mentality of a caddy versus a player. Um, I've actually got some stats here for Matt that, that I want to bring up and talk about how well he actually putts and kind of get your insight into, you know, how you start alluding it to early, how you kind of give him a read but let him make his own decision. At the um, Genesis Open, where you all finished second, mm -hmm. he uh, – his putting stats, and a lot of people are going to make this, probably not going to believe the numbers I give you, 
But for his birdie conversion, so, so his birdie conversion is inside eight feet. He was 100%, made every birdie inside eight feet. But here's the amazing one. From nine to 20 feet, he made 54% of all his birdies for the whole week. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I didn't even know that. I, well, and that's what's amazing. You know, PGA Tour averages about 30, believe it or not, but winners get up to 40 on average. But he was 54% there, and then in Mexico, he was 40%. Now, I think your normal average golfer has no comprehension how hard it is to convert over half of all your putts from 9 to 20 feet. You know, your read has to be good, obviously, and, and you all you know, use a combination of aim point and, and match natural read, which is good. Um, but you've really got to hit on all cylinders. You know, when he's putting that well and he does it, you know, that's not the only time he's done it. He can putt spectacularly well. What do you think are the factors that are all kind of kicking in together to make that happen? I think a lot of it is confidence. Uh, like I said before, you know, at this level, at this level, when guys miss a putt, I think when they miss a putt, it is rarely because of their stroke. Um, I think a lot of amateurs yeah. tend to, you know, sit on, see them on the side of a green, just, you know, working on their stroke over and over and over again, you know, and most of the time that's not what it was. It was speed. It was, it was a bad read. Um, so a lot of it is confidence. You know, you get out there early in a tournament, and, you know, you guys read a few, right, even if they don't make them, if you read them correctly and you think, all right, we got it, we're good on speed, we're good on feel, um, you know, the, the breaks we're reading are correct, I think it just builds confidence as the weeks go in. If they go in, added bonus, because then, you know, it's like a three-point shooter, you just feed me, you know, I'm, I'm hot, mm -hmm. I can't wait to hit this next putt. Um, so I think, uh, you know, a lot of it is confidence, and if, if you feel like – you start a week in the opposite way. Um, you know, a lot of times in between holes, I'm trying to figure out why, why aren't we reading these right? Is the speed off? Um, what are we doing differently? Um, but it's, it's like anything. It's, it's confidence you, you, at Riviera, which are some of the toughest greens that to read on tour. Um, I think we got off to an early, really good start. And, and that just, you know, built as the week went on. And, and he felt very confident when, when guys at this level, it's like, if they're if they get on a par three and the wind's swirling around and even if it's only a nine iron and they're unsure about it, there's a chance they're going to make a bad swing just because they're not sure about what they're doing. When they're a hundred percent bought into their decision, they're going to make a good swing. Same thing with putting. If they buy into the read, they like the read, they like the feel, they're going to make a good stroke period. Um, so I, I think most of it is confidence and getting into that rhythm. Yeah, I agree. It's usually not the stroke at your level. It's, it's really, and that's why I think it's so important what you said, that they have to make their own decision. I'd rather have a player, I'd rather give a player my opinion, but have him make his own decision right or wrong, because ultimately they're probably going to hit a better putt, don't you think? Absolutely. And it's rare when, when we disagree, unless I have 150% confidence in what I've felt or what I've read, um, you know, I, I'll kind of end our discussion with, okay, you got to go with what you're feeling here. You're hitting the putt, you know, and like I said, there's a couple times um, when that's happened, when I've really felt strongly about something that he wasn't quite seeing, um, you know, and luckily I was right. But, but <laughs> most of the time, if we're not on the same page, I gotta, you know, I gotta let it go and let him go because ultimately he's hitting the putt. He's hitting the shot. He's going to have to go with what he feels. You know, if I can talk him into what I'm feeling great, but if not, then you have to let him go. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Peter, with the players you've worked with, do you find that very similar at high levels of golf? Yeah. I mean, they very rarely are they not great at uh, their stroke. I mean, they can do all kinds of crazy things with their putting stroke, and it still goes exactly where they want it to go. Uh, and pretty much with good speed. Now there have been exceptions where I've seen that maybe their speed gets off from day to day. Um, but yeah, I mean, most of the time they know exactly what they're doing. So confidence is, is probably number one. Cool. cool. Yeah. Uh, and kind of switching gears here. Um, I coached collegiately for 20 years. I did a lot of really good moments of coaching and I had a lot of moments where I uh, was suboptimal in my coaching. So uh, we always like self-reflection <laughs> as a group here. This is like our therapy session. You think of us yes. as – you said as a caddy, you got to be a psychiatrist. So we're going to put our psychiatrist. Psychologist. Psychiatrist you. prescribes drugs. That's right. <laughs> well, well, after this point, caddies would be able to do that out here. Oh. <laughs> so, Miss. So, Mr. Wood, uh, what was one of the better moments or one of the best moments you can remember as a caddy is like, whether that's just the, what happened, uh, something that you help with. And then, of course, you know, we're, we got to go negative because we're Americans. We love negative. <laughs> we, love, we love reality trash television. So I'll, I'll let you start with the good and then we're going to hit you with the bad. I'm going to open the, some the, water. The goods, um, the goods are always the team events for me. I mean, I, I just I live for Ryder Cups and President's Cups and and was lucky enough to be in the Olympics. So uh, any of those experiences for, for me are right at the top. But in terms of one moment um, that I would look back on and say, it, it, I made a difference there would be Hunter's first win in Hartford. Um, you know, we were leading all day long and, and lost the lead to the very end to Jake Williamson. We we're playing the last hole and we needed to make a birdie to get into a playoff. And, and we were, it was just the wind direction and a situation where we were just stuck. We were right in between eight and nine iron, and we kept going back and forth, and the wind would move a little. We'd change clubs. We'd do this. And, and I, you know, I, I finally I saw that I was confused. I knew he was. So I said, you know what? Stop all this. Put the club away. We're going to start completely over from the beginning. And we went through everything, and, and we made the right decision to smash a nine iron, and he ended up hitting about eight feet, making birdie to get into the playoff, which he ultimately won. Um, so that, that was probably my my one of my proudest moments in terms of actually, I know I made a difference there. Um, worst, worst feeling as a caddy ever was a U.S. Open at Pinehurst. We were, he was playing pretty first day. He didn't play well, but second day he was really playing well. Um, you know, we, we were getting into that even par territory where U.S. Opens typically are, are, are a really good feeling to be in. Um, and, and he and Jamie Donaldson hit these drives on our, what was our ninth hole of the day, kind of a blind tee shot. And we got up there, and it was funny. They both used such a, a rare marking on their ball. They both put a slash through their number. Um, and I'd never seen anybody else do it before, but Jamie and Hunter both did it. One was this way, one was that way. And I was the first one up to the balls, and I just got the yard. Their balls were right next to each other, and, and I got the yardage to what the ball I thought was ours. And, and, you know, Hunter didn't look at it. Jamie didn't look at his. His caddy didn't look at his. And they both, <laughs> you know, hit the wrong ball. Um, you know, and I took a lot, I, I took most of the blame for that since I was the first one of the ball. And I, I thought that was the right thing to do. Uh, but that was probably my, my worst moment as a caddy. Very good. I, I know as a coach, I, I'll never forget this moment. I was coaching a player and he's on fire. I come walking up and I'm like, what do you think of the course? And he goes, oh, it's easy. 
And I was like, right <laughs> when he said that to me, I was like, uh-oh. He went from being, I think, six under through 11 to finishing one over for the day. And I was like, <laughs> at the end of the round, I walked up to him. I go, that's on me, bro. <laughs> that was me. That was not you. I apologize. Same thing. I, I, I screwed the pooch on that one. I apologize. Uh, that's funny. I always, I always say, you know, when, when a player shoots an exceptionally good round, a 61 or a 62, I said, you know, a caddy has nothing to do with that, period. The only thing a nothing. caddy can do with a 62 is turn it into a 67. That's right. <laughs> if they're playing that well, give them the number and get as far away from it as you can. How about yourself, Pete? Inside of coaching, what, what were we <sighs> working with uh, caddies and players? What was one of your highlights and then a, a low light? Uh, boy, I, I had a couple of highlights. One was, uh, the first time that Woody and I, uh, and Cameron Champ actually went out, uh, down at Ansel Hoffman and Woody had seen Aimpoint before this. And we had talked a little bit, uh, but at that point it was still unproven and we were on one of the greens and Cameron had about a 45 footer and, uh, I walk the line and there's a, I actually have a picture of this and what are you standing there with his arms crossed? And I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. So I just went through the entire read and it was literally like an inch outside from 40 feet. And I go back to Cameron and I say, hey, you need to hit this at the right speed. That's all you want to think about here. Just get it on this line. It's going to go in and literally hits it. Boom. Hits hits the hole, goes right in. And I went, oh, thank you. <laughs> so that Third was, hole. Third that, hole up the big slope. It was. It was unbelievable. So, so that was one. The other one that was in front of Woody was we were at uh, Silverado, and it was the first time I was working with Hunter, and we had a double breaker. And Hunter drops a ball, and he goes, read this one. And I went, oh, okay. So I read it. And it broke like six feet one direction and a foot the other. And I said, it's five feet over here. And uh, he hits it and it goes in. And Hunter goes, that was pretty good. And I said, would I have been going in or walking in if you hadn't hit that in? And he goes, probably. I think it's Silverado breaks towards San Francisco, I thought, though. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, that's what Johnny told me when I worked with him. I said, oh, Okay. Uh, so that, that was a couple of highlights. Uh, the one low light was the very first professional player that I worked with, who's a Sacramento native, but I won't bring up the person's name. Uh, I, I worked with this person and we were using the chart at the time and it was really new. And it was, a, in fact, I think my first professional lesson that I had ever given Oh, I remember this one. Oh, yeah. I still laugh about this story. <laughs> yes. And so we're going along and, and the lesson's going really well. And then we get to a certain point when it, the, the break kind of flattens out and it was just generally too much break. And we just hadn't read it correctly uh, because we were still kind of using that original system where you walked the half circle down below the hole. It was like at least 10 years ago. Oh, it was. Yeah. And so I'm going through the lesson and the person hits the putt and it doesn't break. And I'm like, uh Oh, <laughs> so I said, well, let's go through it again. So we go through it again. Nope. Still doesn't break. And this person torched me 
I mean, just <laughs> torched me. So I, I said, I'm going to refund you the money, you know, take what information you got. So the person took the information. I called Mark immediately and I was like, um, I just got roasted by my first professional lesson. He goes, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> so he's telling me. Now, now you're in. <laughs> I said, oh man, I will never let that happen again. Ever. <laughs> oh. I, I think was, I laughed for 10 minutes after that phone call. <laughs> it was it was awful. And I was just, I came home and I said to my wife, Mandy, I, I don't know if I can do this. I've worked with some pretty high level athletes before coaching swimming for all those years and parents that are intense, but it was nothing like this person. It was wow. So I will never forget that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So John, a uh, question for you. You're out on tour all the time. You're in the trenches. You see all the, how the operations work, the scheduling, everything. Um, and, and typically people who are really, you know, down in the weeds like that have the best advice on how to improve or how to change uh, the, the situation. Uh, what would you, uh, you know, if you had a perfect wish list for the PJ Tour to make any kind of changes or modifications, what would you have them add or change? Uh, there's too many tournaments. Um, and to me, it's just, it, it, it weakens the product. I think there's so many events, the opposite seals events, um, you know, the fall series. There's so many events and I know you can find sponsors for them all, but I think you need to ask the question, should we? Should we be playing that many events? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the only major sport in the world without an off season these days. Um, and, and, you know, I, I know you, you, I know you need playing opportunities for guys who just get out there for rookies or guys who aren't as highly ranked, but the one, you know, the one constant out here is play better, play better golf is it, nothing's given to you out here. You know, Matt Kuchar and, and even Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson, they didn't start their careers in all the majors and in all the world events. They started just like everybody else where they're in the small fields and the, you know, the not the great events and they played their way to that level. I just think we could easily lose 10 tournaments, um, get rid of the opposite field events. Um, you know, I, I've been very lucky, but I, I look at some of the world ranking points available at these opposite events. One great example, a few years back, um, uh, Matt finished, I think tied for fourth in Akron world events every great player in the world is there. Um, and his good friend, Gary Woodland finished second in Reno. So uh, playing against not to say nobody, but nobody in terms of world ranking and Gary got more world ranking points than Matt did. Hmm. I think that's ridiculous. Um, I think those events need to be much less valued. You can give them money, but in terms of FedEx points um, and in terms of world ranking points, they should be much, much lower than they are. Um, but in general, I just think we have too many events. Yeah, golf is like the, is probably the only sport in the world that there really isn't an off season. I mean, you can say there's an off season, but there isn't because the guys go to Dubai and they go they go to Asia, and you, you know they're you know every other sport in the world's got three or four months off, uh, but right. but not golf for sure. Yeah, Pete, you got any opinion on that? Um, as a golf fan, um, yeah. There's too many events. I would definitely agree. Like you start to lose interest in watching all these things. And 
I love watching golf. Uh, but when you start to have events that none of the big players are at, or it's like, well, one events in the morning and you watch it and then you've got the major event in the afternoon. It's like, well, okay, I'm kind of done. Now I'm going to fall asleep while I watch some of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would agree that there's just too many. Well, this, we're in a unique situation right now where we're not going to have golf for a few months, like really properly no golf at all. And I think it's fascinating to see what the TV ratings will be once it kicks up again to see if you actually have an increase in demand after an extended off period versus just kind of rolling through the whole year. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I, I'm thinking, what is it going to be like for other major sports, like for baseball? You know, are fans going to flood back into these parks? Uh, or are they going to go, ah, I don't know. I'm, like, I'm a huge baseball fan, and I'm even kind of thinking, I don't know if I want to go back in. But I'm all for if they can play in Arizona and there's no fans, I just want to see baseball. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's kind of my thinking. All right, we're kind of hitting a time limit here, but before we go away, anytime that someone's new to our podcast, we like to hit them with a rapid fire of questions. Uh, just kind of get some insight of your personality. Um, I'll let Mark start because he pulled John's name, and I'm going to get Pete. So these are- <laughs> we flipped a coin because we because there's pros and cons to both y'all. Pete, Pete, you're maybe lucky that I didn't uh, ask you questions, but then again, I might be lucky also based on what your answer might be. <laughs> Bring it. All right. What, what are your first? <laughs> okay. Yours are, yours are going to probably be easier than than uh, Pete, so we're going to leave him for last. Uh, first question: What is the biggest misconception about tour caddies? Boy, I'm supposed to be rapid fire. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, biggest misconception uh, that we're all good players. I think a lot of people think that mm. you need to be a great player uh, to be a good caddy. And it's not necessarily true. Cool. Same goes for coaches. <laughs> 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 all right. Tell us the most interesting and least known fact about yourself. Wow. Uh um i I, i'm i like to write songs and play guitar in my off season um in my downtime probably um probably the least known fact all right cool all right who is your favorite lpj player julie inkster nice i love julie love julie if you were never a caddy what would you be doing for a living oof <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I probably would do what Peter's doing. I, I always thought I'd be a school teacher one day. Um, I always thought I'd go back and teach English and be a golf coach somewhere in high school. So I'd probably be doing something along those lines. Ooh, high school, high school teacher. That's a tough one. <laughs> All right. Last one. What's the nickname that your closest friends call you? Other than Woody. Uh, it's all, all a version of Wood. Woodmont, uh, it's all something Wood. Woody, Woodmont, Woody James, always something Woody related. Cool. All right. Thank you. All Brian. right. My You're turn. Up. Got it. Oh, boy. Got, got my sheet of paper here. Are you sweating yet, Pete? Yeah, I've been working <laughs> out. I did, I did huge research on Instagram last night. I was going through all your posts. Oh, no. I really wanted to dig into <laughs> Peter Brown and ask the insightful questions that all of America that really doesn't care about Peter Brown but pretend they do. 
would okay. want to know. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> nah, they're not bad, Pete. Mark wouldn't let me be. Um, gas grill or charcoal grill? Oh, <laughs> gas doesn't even have taste. My wife <laughs> and I won't buy one. Oh, I triggered him with that one. Gas <laughs> grill or charcoal? Come on. <laughs> All right. No. Three, three word game. Describe your golf game in three words. <sighs> Long, <laughs> uh, time-wise. <laughs> yeah, is this distance or too time? many shots? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I hit the ball fairly decently for an amateur. Uh, chipping, uh, yippy. Uh, Ooh, yeah, and uh, and putting. So long, yippy putter. Nice. Yes. <laughs> nice. Putting is not an adjective. <laughs> well, okay, good speed. I Mr. Don't know. School teacher. Yeah, I, I'm not. I teach science. Really? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't really teach. No. All right. If you could be a super villain, who would you be? Super villain. The Joker. The Joker. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, what would be your favorite entree to cook on your green egg? I I like my steaks. I like New York steaks. Nice. And then I guess the final one is what is going to run out first in the quarantine of the Brown House homestead? Bourbon or beer? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um well actually this is a funny funny thought. I guess that uh Total Wine and Bevmo might not be essential stores here coming up. So my wife said, you need to go get some more beer. Don't buy any more whiskey. You've had got enough. Very good. Very good. <laughs> so uh, as we're ending up our show here today, uh, any final comments, uh, John? Just, just looking forward to getting back out there. That's, that's all I can say. Awesome. Thank you for your time today. How about yourself, Pete? Uh, I can't wait to get back to normal. I want to leave my house more often. I want to give hugs. I'm tired of not touching anything. <laughs> well, that, that could have been a completely different yes, line of Yes, I know. Move on. <laughs> my, my final thoughts were just, John, thanks for coming on. You know, uh, most people don't get real insight into, you know, how hard a, a tour caddy works, how well you have to be prepared, how well you have to know the game, uh, and, the, and the psychological site, you know, the, the, how much you have to support a player mentally, you know, is, is always fascinating to me, but we really appreciate, appreciate you coming on and sharing all that with us. And obviously best of luck when you finally get kicking it again. And uh, hopefully a couple months. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. It's, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today on in the hunt. Uh, we want to thank John Wood and Peter Brown as our guests, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes like this. Please reach out to us with any content ideas you have. And thank you again for joining us on this hunt.